Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. I'm here with Dead Cat. We've got both Tom and Katie. We're doing a host-only episode. We're going to start off and discuss... Dead Cat classic. Yes. Sort of the real... Where we really get to fight it out with nobody interfering and uh, stopping us from just... uh, Endless, endless stream of takes. There's but, no, uh, no journalism happening here. <laughs> this is a journalism-free zone. So we're going to talk about, we'll, we'll get to the market, which I'm excited to talk about in the second half, but we're going to start off talking about Spotify's uh, decision to keep Joe Rogan on the program and let uh, Neil Young uh, pull his music and then sort of Substack, obviously close to home for me, where I published Newcomer. Uh, has been in the news since the Washington Post and the Guardian both said that, you know, Substack's making like 2.5 million or (laughs) some probably like a small amount of money in the scheme of business off anti-vax sort of misinformation. And so Substack has been drawn into the uh, free speech fight. And, you know, Substack wrote this post basically just, I don't know, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Tom, Katie, any initial take on, I mean, the core issue, I mean, should Joe Rogan be on Spotify or do you, do you have a strong point of view on, on the core issue to start off with? I'd like to stick to the Neil Young part of it. <laughs> well, uh, I, yeah, I agree. That's the interesting part. Like, <laughs> yeah. Are they losing Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young too? Because that's a bigger hit to me personally. <laughs> I, I mean, I like both catalogs, but, you know, CSNY has personal resonance to me. I grew up listening to it. My mom was obsessed. I listened to the Deja Vu record constantly. That makes sense. This all tracks, Tom. Now we yeah. know so much more about you. Yeah. No, I was heavily, heavily inundated by CSNY. Um, and then I saw Peter Frampton is also pulling down. Oh, his, I didn't see that. His catalog too. So, so we're losing the boomers. But I, yeah, I, the I 70s think that, are coming back to attack and Frampton Live, that is too bad. Whether it's Frampton yeah, or whether like it's Neil Young, I think the interesting part is that issues around freedom of expression, and when, I wouldn't even call it free speech because if you look at the First Amendment and the way it's written, it's about whether or not the government can prohibit the speech of, of citizens. But I mean, freedom of right. expression right. and misinformation, these issues that we would normally look to authorities to resolve are being resolved in the free market, essentially by various actors deciding whether or not they want to participate in a platform rather than any kind of regulation. And I think that's what's fascinating to me. Also that it's a Swedish company, you know, like we're all viewing this through the lens of, I mean, obviously the First Amendment is misapplied here, but my understanding in talking to some folks, and I'm not really reporting this, just these are casual conversations, people in and around Spotify, is that they actually very strongly believe in people's, you know, freedom of expression. And that is more important than I would have thought out of a Swedish company. You would think, you know, state overreach, they would love to regulate these kinds of things. But they're not that bothered from like a corporate level, I think, by the idea that there is like bullshit being trafficked through their platforms. I mean, it is an issue with Rogan more specifically because he's not it's not just a platform, right? It's not just Apple Podcasts and distributing it through there. They pay his they, you know, they, they pay right. his checks that, that you know, he, he's, he's well, on there for, uh, you know, he's, he's their star podcaster that, you know, your subscription money goes directly to him. Uh, so there is a connection. I'm not saying that I agree or, you know, th- that's not my stance, but like th- it isn't purely a platform argument in the same way that I think a lot of people want to apply it uh, to Facebook or even Apple as like a podcast platform. I think the free speech part of this is sort of a misdirect, Right. 
in Substack's policy, which we'll come back to, they were like, we will continue to take a strong stance in defense of free speech because we believe the alternatives are so much worse. And to me, that's just like an empty statement. Everybody is going to say in the Western world that they believe in free speech to some degree. What what they're missing is really like the case law, right? The sort of, okay, you can't say, you know, there's fire in a burning building or whatever. And all of these companies admit that there's some line. Most of them would not host Stormfront, right? So the United States as a country believes in free speech, and we've had sort of a long evolving sort of legal history to define what that exactly means and what all the burdens are. So for these tech companies to come out and just say, we believe in free speech often feels like they've missed, just, just like they're they're behind on the debate. It's like, okay, fine, you're on free speech. That That's really not here or there. It's how you define all the narrow points. And then it's what is your policy on being anti-vax or, you know, is that a red line or not? And what are the lines and how do you decide what speech isn't part of this sort of productive debate? So I I just think the statement that you're for free speech is just sort of pompous because it's Especially when you're you're also saying quiet, more quietly, we're for free speech, except for in the moments we're not. And we've decided (laughs) what those are, but we are not going to really talk about it. Right. On Substack, a lot of people are dunking on them because they don't allow... Uh, pornography. And so it's, you know, you clearly don't allow free speech in the way America, you know, America allows pornography and there it's for free speech. You clearly have lines about what you allow. And it, you know, on, on one level of looking at it, it seems crazy that you're okay. You're not, you're okay with people leading people to their deaths by <laughs> arguing that they shouldn't take the vaccine. I don't really I mean, I think part yeah. of it is because there are these really strict federal prohibitions on things like child pornography for which a company can genuinely get into trouble. And that is something that would be a disaster for a platform. Whereas the federal government hasn't really told us where the lines are around, in your words, leading people to their deaths by spreading misinformation. So you can see from, if you were the general counsel, you would say definitely no pornography. And, you know, maybe when the government says that they'll get in trouble with this misinformation, then we will ban it. Right. That's why the free speech thing is also so frustrating because they're clearly often acting out of their own economic interests and have these prerogatives in terms of what the laws are and what they might get 100%. sued for. But they make it seem like it's some principled stance totally detached from right. all these economic decisions. So you're you're giving this sort of high fluting. I mean, these companies are basically run by Jerry from Succession. <laughs> But what are they going to, I mean, yeah, the honest answer is like, we pay Joe Rogan's, you know, we sign Joe Rogan's paychecks and he is a huge moneymaker for us. Therefore, the financial loss that we would take by kicking Rogan off the platform is far worse than losing Neil Young's catalog, like 1970s onward. Right. So it gets diff- It gets more interesting if a contemporary artist leaves. It gets more interesting if Beyonce or right. Taylor Swift is like, I'm out. This is ridiculous. Yeah. No, hu- hugely so. I just want to say... On the core issue, I think Joe Rogan should be allowed to be on Spotify. They should pay him. I wouldn't pull my music from Spotify. We're hosted on, we publish on Spotify, by the way. So if you wanted to take a stance, uh, you could push. We're we're on Spotify as a platform. We we get no money from Spotify. Whereas, you know, all of these artists are getting residuals. from. I I guess if I was an executive working in Spotify, I wouldn't have said, oh, Rogan should be our like, 
billboard artists that were going to pay a ton of money to come on. They knew what they were getting into. I mean, in so much as they even pulled some of his older episodes because they were like, all right, right, Joe, let's give you a clean slate. You're on Spotify now. Let's see what you give us. And, you know, probably 85 to 90 percent of the time, they're completely fine. You know, it's like when he interviews Carrot Top, that's not going to piss anybody off. I mean, I haven't. Well, I don't know about that. Well, yeah, uh, I actually watched part of that interview. Crimes against humor. He's a (laughs) dumb guy who talks about MMA, like, and sort of admits that, right? He's I mean, a regular guy. He's also right. the most popular podcaster by a long shot, and there's a reason for it. Which I, just, is that- I just think it's much more pernicious if some guy's like, I'm a doctor, here's what you should believe about the vaccine, while the tech platform is providing no rebuttal or like effort to to say, well, the scientific consensus doesn't agree. But for Joe Rogan, where it's like, this is some random guy who has opinions and sort of has a popular show are people really that misled that they're hearing from some dumb guy who interviews people? I'm sure they have a line with him. Why is Joe Rogan the most popular podcaster, Tom? Because he speaks in a, uh, you know, kind of a, a approachable, affable cadence. He kind of, he's always thinking out loud and just sort of whatever bubbles up there, he seems like open to it and then very lightly debates it to himself and then moves on also. You know, he's an MMA guy. and There's like no filter. I mean, yeah, it's all. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've watched a number of his interviews. I think they're very watchable and, right. and, and entertaining. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's in, in the same way that people in Los Angeles have been kind of like ambiently absorbing Ryan Seacrest for like 20 years, even though they don't really know why. Uh, <laughs> and they don't really have strong feelings about him. He's just sort of there. And I think Rogan's the same thing. It's, he's not a hard hitting interview, but I don't know. And it's also incredibly long. Each episode is like three or four hours, which is like, uh, you know, definitely, they're, you know, Spotify is getting their money's worth uh, in terms of like minutes from from Rogan. But it's it's a huge show. And I think it's even grown as he's joined Spotify. Like this has worked for them. This isn't like buying something at its peak and then slowly declining. Like they got they got a hot and, and podcasts. Uh, there was actually a good story that uh, Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg did a couple weeks ago saying like podcasting as a medium is really hard up on trying to get new hit shows. There aren't that many things that kind of bubble up and become incredibly, you know, watched or or listened to shows. And so the fact that they have like a true genuine star there, like they're, it's going to be hard for them to walk away from that given how much of their, you know, their strategy is about podcasting right now. And there there is something annoying about, liberals and the left that they want to try and make Spotify's entire brand about Joe Rogan when he's one of many people that they pay money for and like appeals to a certain audience. And they're, I don't know, it it can be a little annoying. Obviously there's something very free market about people pulling their content and protesting and using capitalism to get what they want. And so I'm sympathetic to that, but then there's also just sort of like a censorious sort of attitude where it's like uh, just whining about everything that people like is that said there is clearly a line for spotify i mean if he were to go out there and say things that are unambiguously racist they would pull him right Right. do you think that's spotify's line uh i guess racist is sort of you know things get a little muddy there but if he were to i mean i guess there are in first amendment violations or not violations but if you were to advocate violence or well yeah things, anything yeah. anything that he could be that would bring about a criminal charge i think is a right. line most companies would take. i mean anything what well, we saw with chamath you know where he was attacked on the china stuff anything where republicans and democrats have to say he's terrible that's that's the thing you're gonna get 
God, I don't or, know. If, yeah, if, it was interesting Rogan... that Shamath did bring those constituencies together. <laughs> like, I think it's great that Republicans and Democrats can agree that genocide is bad. <laughs> he tripped over that line. I'm trying to imagine a scenario in which Joe Rogan started talking about the Uyghurs. <laughs> it, would, yeah. it, it would just be very off brand for him. Yeah. But, I, you know, if you were out there to say, like, you know, caring about the Uyghurs genocide is below my line, he'd probably get a talking to. I don't think I don't think you canceled. No, I don't. Yeah, that's not most Americans. No, I think it would be like weighing in on something like the death of George Floyd, right? In a way that people thought was like wildly horrific. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's that's a good one. Yes. If at the height of the George Floyd protests, he was like, you know, guy got it coming, or anything even close to that, then I think you would be in a position, or Spotify would be in a position where they were like, that's something we don't want to be you know assigning our name to it all which again i mean that's not really free speech so there's obviously a squishiness to their statement uh that they're even trying to stand behind even if it's irrelevant and we saw this issue come up with twitter when trump was still on twitter you know they had all sorts of reasons why they said it was totally fine to have him on and then it wasn't until after you know many 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 people violently attacked congress that they were like eh, actually actually think maybe not anymore I mean, so I mean, at the high levels, I doubt Neil Young is making all that much from Spotify these days. Right. But I'm trying to think, like, yeah, Katie, you brought up Beyonce, Taylor Swift. Um, I think Taylor for a time has pulled her music from Spotify. Right. Oh, she? she had a whole huge thing, but now she's like all in. There's been a yeah. ton of I know that benefits that. you a lot, Eric. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a top one percent. I think. Yeah. I'm making my way through red. It's taking me months, but you know, I just I like listen a little bit and be like, oh yeah, I do remember this song, and then I get caught Taylor's up. Taylor's version stuff. or the Ta- the the Taylor's the version. version. Taylor's version. Taylor's version. Yeah, yeah. I know at least which version to listen to. Yeah, I'm trying to think who it would take for me if they got pulled. It would be more just like individual songs, you know. Like if I couldn't listen to, I don't know, CNC Music Factory, everybody dance now. Right. Uh, if all of a consortium of your favorite artists took only their like top two hits off. Yeah. It has to do like deep cuts only. I couldn't do it. Oh, wow. CNC Music Factory, deep cuts. I don't think they had any. Yeah. I, would actually, be. I, I can't think of a second song by them. But yes, I don't, I don't even think there is somebody who if they pull their music. I'm actually an Apple Music person, stupidly. So I'm not even really relevant to this discussion. When I need to dust off my CDs, which I'm looking at, my, my gajillion CDs. I actually, uh, this, this, there's, there's no segue here. It's just something I actually wanted to bring up to you specifically, Katie. There is a Spotify podcast that I have been obsessed with over the last week. Uh, it's called the 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And it's this music critic who works for The Ringer who goes song oh by God. song and explains why each song like was emblematic of the 90s. What was the last song he chose? I, I'm I'm behind. I just found out about this thing like two sure, weeks sure. ago. Um, but or what was the last episode you listened to? What was the song? I listened to uh, a tribe called Quest. Absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. That was like yeah. suddenly hip hop is okay for everyone. Right, we can all like it, and it's good, and yeah. it's happy. It was so happy. It was like. It was right, like, but it's also stupid and kind of profane. Uh, right, best episodes it was have been kind of before rap took a, a turn. Anyway, all right, fun's over. Anyway. Back yeah, to sorry, substance. sorry. I think this is essential listening, but yeah, yeah anyway, so. will, sure they can. But I, I just want to make a point on Substack. Yeah. I know I've Keep talked us, get, about reel us back in. So I mean, I'm on Substack, so I I care, and I just thought that 
the statement they put out was a little, was just sort of naive to the whole debate around moderation on social media platforms that's been happening. That like, they didn't, like to me, the key distinction is what you allow on your platform versus what you're distributing, right? What you're- Also what drives your business, right? that, that matters, but I'm saying in terms of ethically, sure. ethically, like yeah. there's a difference between hosting something and pumping something out to a bunch of people. And right now, Substack just relies on their publishers, people like me, to build an audience. And so if they host bad stuff, it doesn't bother me that much, right? Because it's like those people had that audience, they'd probably have it on some other on a WordPress site. It doesn't matter that much that it's on Substack. But if Substack ever succeeds at building distribution and actually right. building audience, then the position will matter. <laughs> and right, right now they, they've just failed basically at building distribution, right? They launched a reader app. If you're a writer on Substack, they show you metrics that try to emphasize the extent to which they're helping to build your audience, but they're not, everybody knows they're not really building audience right now. So there's sort of a, okay, because we failed at building audience, no one's really going to complain that we're hosting people. I mean, people are complaining, but it's not as a sort of punishing critique. But obviously, if it becomes the case that they're driving a huge audience to anti-vaxxers and are responsible for those, that, that was the critique of Facebook that Facebook has finally started to recognize, then it becomes more of an issue. And so I just feel like that they put out such an unsophisticated statement was really annoying because it's like this has been well discussed. There are lots of like experts on it. And to just be like, oh, no, we love free speech just makes them seem sort of dumb. I mean, I like the people over there, but I'm like, come on. It's like, if if your whole point is that we're a nuanced platform that hosts sophisticated debate, your own statement about it should like indicate a level of sophistication. I mean, uh, I agree, but I think Jerry from Succession probably had a lot of hand in that. <laughs> that it's just pure so. cynical, right? That it's, that it's yeah. like, okay, people like, I mean, that's always, that's, I guess what I'm trying to say. People who are not following this closely, like how free speech sounds. So if you make your point, free speech, a certain segment of people will be like, great. But like, that's not a really sophisticated position. And so either this is extremely cynical in that they don't want to actually weigh in to the sort of thorny, actual, smart discussion. They of, don't. Of course they don't want to. This That sucks. They don't want to be involved in, in I mean, pulled into a th- debate about free speech. This paragraph would make your blood boil. They're like, in a pernicious cycle, these dynamics in turn give each group license to point. They're just sort of each saying group, how they're there's constant. Yeah. yeah, they're both yeah. sides in. It's the yeah. other there side are who shuts down criticism. It's like, <laughs> I'm just like, good, bad. What's the difference? You know, it's just like classic, like, oh my God, just like total both sides in. It's just like the dumbest sort of shit. It's why don't they just have mandatory? Why don't they just have mandatory vaccinations for Substack? Uh, writers <laughs> that would be so funny like yeah uh, <laughs> just, just end it there just be like we have a hundred percent vaccination status for everyone that writes for Substack. that would just be a good troll you know like it's just like totally out of nowhere uh, if you want to yeah. go right on the other non you know mandatory vax platforms be my guest you know 100%. ghost.io maybe they're vax maybe they're not you know subscribers yeah. beware I don't, they don't want to get involved in this at all. This sucks for them. Um, isn't right. Alex Berenson on Substack? Yes, he's yeah, bad. He's probably, I mean, yeah, he's terrible. He's, yeah, um, he's he's certainly the extreme of that. I'm sure they'd rather him not be on there, but you know, it's just not uh, like you said. The numbers he have are a small. very large audience. However? I mean, people people say that he makes like seven hundred thousand dollars a year. I think I saw. I'm not. That's, he's ki- he's kicked off Twitter, right? 
I think so. I think he's I'm kicked not, off Twitter. I haven't really kept up with who's been banned from which. <laughs> he's right. not in the New York Times alumni group. I mean, this fits into what I'm. This <laughs> that's slack. Yeah. Uh, this fits into. I mean, the fact that Twitter is basically doing distribution for Substack makes Substack's editorial challenge much easier because the people driving audience to Substack are these social media companies, which have had to think about this for a while and have stricter rules, whereas Substack, which is just a like basically a hosting platform and sort of a sort of tool for writers, can sort of play naive for the time being. But obviously, if they ever succeed in building the business they aspire to, then, then they're going to have to grow up and have a more sophisticated point of view. What would your ideal statement be from them, though? Other than like not as, not as simple. My ideal statement would be, you know, inherently we have to draw lines and we think we should have a pretty permissive attitude towards hosting people. Personally, we find anti-vax statements abhorrent and we understand that as we grow, we're going to try and direct people to substacks that we think are interesting on a whole uh, range of subjective factors like their ability to build audience and our own sensibility and brand. And we certainly don't want to drive audience to things that we think are morally reprehensible, like anti-vax statements. So while we're happy to let a range of debate, we believe in free debate, uh, we don't intend to drive audience right. uh, to these people beyond so take what responsibility they, they can attract. A platform that drives audience less so is one that is an economic vehicle for We're just writers. like draw a strong distinction between the different types of, that understand that people are have different opinions about when you're driving attention versus when you're just hosting and make your position clear on both fronts. I mean, I was surprised that Casey Newton on Platformer sort of applauded Substack for having a very clear position, which is like, we like free speech. Um, I, I thought their position was simplistic. I also just don't think clarity is the number one value. I think not promoting and distributing, not drawing new attention to anti-vax, terrible speech, the outcomes matter more than sort of the tightness and clarity of the, the position. I got to say, the only thing that's drawn my attention to the anti-vax people on Substack have been people complaining about the anti-vax people totally. on Substack. I, mean, that, I right. never would have even known that Alex Berenson has a Substack or the, you know, the fact that there are $2.5 million worth of value being created from, from these writers. So, yeah, I don't know. Deplatform those people. They, they, they drove my attention. <laughs> I mean, the other point people made about Substack is just, you know, it's sort of, oh, people's opinions grow by being in direct like confrontation with each other. But Substack's not doing anything to like surface rebuttals to these anti-vax Substacks to those people. It's not like, oh, you're getting an anti-vax Substack. Here's like the other side of it and why, and you should listen to that. That's so lame though. I I mean like that, that was like the suggestion for Facebook for a while to be like, you may be interested in another side of this statement. It's like, come on. The people that are diehard anti-vaxxers or any of the misinformation on Facebook, they're not going to be swayed because there was a little like suggestion box saying like, you might want to read Vox for another perspective. I, I don't really that, that's I, what you want there at, at the bottom of Alex Berenson, someone who just got through, you know, hearing that like mRNA is gene therapy and, you know, you're going to die of cancer in the next six to eight weeks being like, hey, you know, Eric Topol from the Scripps Institute has a different view on this. There are core product failures at the heart of a lot of this, right? Like 
some crazy guy comes up to you on the street and like starts ranting about anti-vax and you like see their sort of his, they're troubled. They look, yeah, I, there are a lot of like things off the internet that you can receive about someone to understand them and assess them that the internet obscures and that these platforms help people hide. And by not like, if you're Alec, Alex Berenson that no one sort of takes seriously in the mainstream sort of medical authorities or anything, the the failure of social media platforms to let people really understand this person and have any sort of history on them and just get this sort of snapshot window into them. I do think it's their design choices about how social media platforms are built and sort of the sort of total abandonment of any sort of credentialism or... yeah. I guess. I mean, like, at the earliest days of the fake news debate, remember, the issue wasn't so much that there was inaccurate information, but that it was being presented as coming from an authoritative source, right? Remember, like, the the, the Pope-endorsed Trump was written on some site that was like the the Colorado Register right. or, or something like that. And, and you know, the argument there, which is one I, I, I more buy, is like, oh, there could be well-meaning people that for some reason think that, you know, totally, the masthead... Right on this site is, is, is legitimate here. And if that's the only news they read that day, then they could think that you just, you know what you're getting with Substack. If you're, if you're signing up to read someone's right. I agree with that. statements. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to move over to the markets? You agree that this sort of distribution versus hosting. Yeah. Distinction. yeah I think it's, yeah, I think it's a slightly different debate. I think when it becomes to distribution, Substack uh, has more responsibility than simply being, you know, an economic platform or, or, you know, like basically a payment platform and web hosting service. Well, Stripe is a payment, a facilitator right. of using Stripe. You know, there. So that's interesting, though, right? I mean, like that gets to like the real, like the, you know, the backbone of the Internet when, when people like that start making distinctions. And I know. Cloudflare, right. And that would be that would be pretty bad. Right. I, I do think it's like a gradual scale. You want the infrastructure layer to be the least restrictive in the distribution layer to be the most that makes sense that's like tv shows in the past you, you know you choose if you're a brand you play tv you decide what's what's on the show that makes sense to me right look i'm i'm on the more firm side of just not believing that any of these people should be pulled down under under almost any really? circumstance yeah yeah i'm on I the just, like this people pretend it's so hard to say what's bad and what's good. It's like, you read this fucking terrible thing. You talk to a bunch of experts. I, I understand that there was an impulse to like censor the lab leak theory, which I, I believe I was very suspicious of the origins of uh, the coronavirus and was listening to Steve Bannon's podcast, but I was able to seek it out and find it on whatever like platform it was on because you're still allowed to have like meta conversations about like, Oh, there are people who believe that, you know what I mean? It's, so the so the interesting thing is is that for broadcasters, TV, radio, there are certain kinds of things they just can't put out into the public because they don't hit a standard. So <clears throat> platforms are relatively new in the history of like news distribution, information distribution. Right. Do you think that there should be a standard imposed on platforms akin to a broadcast standard? And if not, why why not? Just because it's user generated? For, for things like trending topics, distribution. Right. For things where, like, if you're on the Facebook profile, very low standard. But if it's being pumped into the feed and being, you know, given virality, then I think there should be, yeah, more similar to a broadcast standard. And the other thing is, if you look at Australia, they did just post laws about distribution of certain kinds of harmful information. And it means that publishers 
in not just the platforms, but publishers in Australia. So if you're a newspaper and you have a comment section and, you know, inappropriate under this law content is posted in the comment section, well, then the newspaper could have a legal issue. And so I think that there are going to be countries that take a firmer hand in terms of, you know, the distribution of content that they think is harmful to society. So, I, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that Australia goes there, but the EU doesn't go there. And then eventually, I, I mean, other countries will, will have to consider it. And there'll be right. a big dividing line between the countries that do and countries that don't. To right. be clear, I want free debate on the internet. Like, I, I don't want to be in a case where you can't even make an argument and publish it somewhere. It's just I want people who are just like, so I want, you know, if you're really seeking something out, you're arguing something, there, there are more ways to share, you know, you can text people things, you can have group, there are more ways to share your ideas now across the world than ever before. I just don't think you have the right, just because an idea is like catchy and people reading it sort of believe it without any other information to get it distributed widely beyond your existing audience. I guess it's not really about a matter of right or not right. I mean, it, obviously we're not even talking constitutionally, right? It's just like human law or, 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 or civilized, you know, right. society that, that people should say things that you disagree with and have harmful effect because they are, you know, getting wide distribution for it. I, I guess it's just hard for me to get past the, like, what is the end state and what do people ultimately want? Because what they're mad about is that there's a lot of anti-vaxxers, right? That there's a lot of people out there have decided one reason or another they don't want to get this vaccine and that has prolonged uh, the suffering that we have all been experiencing for the last couple of years. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference if Substack kicked off the anti-vaxxers, if Joe Rogan was deplatformed in terms of the number of people. Uh, I, I think in the countries where they do have stricter laws about distribution, there are still huge swaths of people that are protesting lockdowns, right. that are anti-vaxxers, well, that are all of these things. So, what I'm about to say should be the refrain of every conversation like this. Fox is still worse. I mean, that's the problem, right? As long right. as... Fox is pumping out with an editorial agenda stuff that's as bad or worse than anything you're going to find that we're complaining about on the internet. It's sort of a dumb argument because you have this super terrible broadcaster that's uh, just, you know, intentionally delivering the message to, you know, the Republican Party base. And so right. and they're theoretically regulated by, you know, the broadcast standards and it's still getting out there. Right. Same way. And I'm not calling for the government really to like crack down more. I'm just saying in sort of the elite discourse, sort of what what we should ask for in sort of these policy positions and how well-intentioned people should think about sort of correctly moderating. Yeah. Yeah. The market? You want to go to the market? Let's go to the market. What's new on, what's new on Wall Street? Let's turn to markets. Nobody likes it. Uh, very unfun. Uh, Real go-go sad. Time. Yeah. Bitcoin unhappy. Is it down right now? I mean, it's down or overall, right but I don't know today whether it's uh, who cares. It's going to come out a couple of days from now. I mean, Robinhood is what it's ten ten point five billion market cap right now. I, I keep taking a victory lap because Rivian, that electric car company, I called a horseman of the apocalypse is way below its IPO price. It's now only worth a self-driven horse. $50 billion. Dollars. It has like no revenue, basically. It's worth $50 billion. So to me, plenty of air. I mean, Tesla- Well, they were a SPAC, right? Uh, no, I think it was a traditional IPO. Tesla is still an $800 billion. Some, I'm pulling it up. $835 billion company. And what? Ford is probably, what? 
a, te- a tenth of that. What is it? Yeah, Ford is a $77 billion company. So I do think there is uh, plenty of room to come out. But we saw lots of great companies like Snowflake, you know, a lot of SaaS. Zoom is way down, I think. You know, companies that just had high revenue multiples, uh, you know, corrected to sort of like pre-pandemic levels. Right. Netflix is down below its pre-pandemic level. And they were one of the winners in the first year or two. So yeah, it feels like we've kind of reset everything back to 2020. I mean, I we need a bear market. I mean, they're, I mean <laughs> they're clearly companies that are ridiculous, right? And because there's a set of companies, I think a lot of the EV company, I mean, I'm glad electric vehicles exist, but the multiples that they're trading at, the absurdity of some, I mean, I would say on demand, sort of the go puffs of the world, the, the, the ability of like absurd businesses to do so well has meant that even sort of the normal software businesses then got insane multiples. And so now we've seen everything correct, but we have, we're not seeing like the truly ludicrous business. We haven't seen like bankruptcies or anything. I don't right. know. And I'll say that I just went to the S&P it's still up more than 15% from a year ago. Right. So even though it's come down a lot, like overall, the market is up. <laughs> On this year, just over the last 28 days, it's it's down a lot. It's down like 9%. But of, if you look at the chart for a year, it's not like we're in, it's not like we are in huge trouble. I say that and I'm like, oh, we're going to go into a bear market. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's really, do you think we recover? Do you think this is just a teaser and we're going to have real, real pain. So I don't, two things. I don't make predictions because I feel like as reporters, we're just, reporters are generally bad at predictions and we're pretty much always wrong. So I I don't like to do that. And the other thing is they think that the market and the real economy are two different things. And so I, I feel like the market's kind of an indicator of what like kind of a subset of the country is doing you know, it's like there are all sorts of forces that have kind of made that sharp decoupling happen, right? So like high-speed trading, et cetera, you know, all sorts of things. But I think that if you look at the economy, that is something that people might want to pay more attention to if they're trying to figure out whether or not we're going to go into a recession. Economic indicators like unemployment, number of people leaving the workforce, like consumer, you know, consumer activity, and that is, I think, start, is what's starting to get wobbly in a way that I find possibly more interesting. But that's just... But the unemployment rate is low. I, I watched um, Jerome Powell, um, the Fed chair, give his sort of talk on on what they plan to do. It's it's super funny to listen to, not, you know, not being sort of a Fed reporter. Uh, you know, they speak in their own sort of little arcane language and they don't want to give anything away. Um, but I mean, basically... It was very clear that, I mean, he called like the stock market, like a market, you know what I mean? It was very clear that they're not orienting around the stock market, that fundamentally the mandates are unemployment and inflation. And they only really care about the stock market to the degree to which it would, you know, cause people, uh, you know, the stock market plunging could cause people to lose their jobs. And I think that's right. It would have been funnier if he was just like, fuck the stock market. But, but yeah, there is a degree, like you're saying that the stock market is not the economy and it's healthy for, I mean, you talk to most investors, savvy ones, and they think we needed a correction that the valuations, even in great companies were a little, were unsustainable, but, but where it goes from here. Yeah. I think we're also in a time when interest rates were so low that 
any investment, no matter how risky, seemed totally fine, especially if we're using borrowed money to do right. it. It's just everything kind of felt free and easy. And if inflation rises and interest rates rise, that won't be the case anymore. So I think that, again, like I am not a predictor, but I am less concerned about what's happening in the stock market. And I'm more interested in kind of what happens with interest rates. And then there's all this like weird stuff happening with supply chains that it's sort of, it's sort of interesting, but people not being able to get stuff, people not being able to move things around the world. Uh, I have no idea how that will affect the economy, but it is fairly new. I mean, for decades, right. we ran on this weird just-in-time manufacturing economy for almost every product uh, that suddenly we can't. And that's going to create costs in companies too. Right. You can't right. Well, there's so many pieces that are like... To some degree, a bad supply chain problem could be seen as reassuring because it means fundamental inflation, that for, sort of the inflationary forces of the Fed aren't the real problem, but it's actually supply chain problem. So there, there's a constant sort of what's good is bad and bad is good. Right. But that's, a, that's why, you know, people like David Sachs, who I saw tweeted out, and I don't follow him, but so this came to me a different way that like, you know, inflation was the result of government you know, stimulus checks that were right. given out to families. That is directly the cause of inflation. And we did this to ourselves, I think was his point there, which of course is I mean, not... there is a possibility. Well, sure. I mean, look, I, I have not read a single good, like one that I felt confident about explanation that holistically explained inflation. I think there I mean, are I a lot of I think the forces. checks to people were great. I mean, I believe in them, but yeah, I mean, p putting government money behind a roaring economy can cause inflation. I mean, yeah, I, I feel it, like it can, but we've done that before. We put a lot of government money behind like all of wall street um, right, in order right. to recover from Better the financial the crisis. And a it lot didn't, of other things, uh, right. yeah. I, it didn't lead to runaway inflation one. And it also did not lead to like any equitable outcomes whatsoever. So yeah, it's like, well, let's take the money and see what happens. If we put it in the hands of the American people. If everybody right. goes out and buys a used car. Awesome. Like we will now have a used car shortage and inflation in the used car market. But you know, people, it's, it, there's not going to be a perfect solution, but I do think it was possibly worth trying the alternative rather than putting a right. trillion dollars totally. behind 10 rich totally. people, put a gajillion dollars behind like just some people. Right. I, mean, I think that the challenge we face right now, right? The, in the savvy investing world, the line is always, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news, right? When you think something's going to happen, you make the trade. And then when they actually announce it, send the market the other way when regular Joe consumer is reacting, right? So right now, people, sort of the inverse, people are selling shares ahead of Fed raising interest rates. When the Fed raises interest rates, will the markets actually, you know, how will the markets react? Will it get worse or have they already priced in those decisions, right? That's sort of the unknowable thing. What's your sense, by the way, on the impact of the crash in the crypto market? Uh, on on the I mean, broader the, economy, the crypto market what at its peak was something like three trillion dollars, and now maybe yeah, it's, it's like it's one point five. So Paul Krugman just did a column, and I like Paul Krugman. I don't know, yeah, him, I, I, I enjoy his writing. Too. And you know, he was sort of comparing it to like a past crisis, was it credit default swaps or I forget what. And it was just like a sort of a dumb column that he acknowledged in some ways, just because the Bitcoin market is just not large enough. To, right. to yeah, but set some sort of shockwave. Here's the only reason that I actually think there's some merit to the crashing of the crypto, you know, like coin values and any of those things is going to have impact is I, I think there, I, I understand that like it's a small number of people that control a huge percentage of all of the existing 
you know, coins and, and NFTs or anything in, in that space. But anecdotally, talking to a lot of people in the ride sharing, you know, in the gig economy space, there's a lot of people that put their money into crypto. I think for a time that was that was suggested as a smart hold and investment of value. Sorry, hold of value or investment. And, you know, with I, and I don't know specifically what coins they always put their money into, but there will be impact uh, on on regular folk. Uh, right. I mean, in some ways, of, the regular people are the ones who eat it because they come in right later. But I just don't think it's enough. It's not yeah, enough There was like money. a GoPuff driver I was talking to who, put, who, who put her like a bunch of her savings into some like Shiba Inu knockoff. Right. Yeah. I'm like, that's a terrible idea. I, of course, I didn't say that to her, but like... No, it's I, a Dogecoin knockoff. The Shibu Inu, I think, right, is the No, no, it wasn't Shiba Inu. It was a non-Shiba Inu. It was like <laughs> oh, sub-Shiba wow, okay. Inu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, a generic it, Shiba Inu. Yeah, so. yeah. Which is like, that might be the most volatile pump and dump of them all. You know, it's just... It is a little bit like all of the IPOs of the 90s where you had completely untested companies pumped up by Silicon Valley money hitting the public markets and then investors, retail investors getting completely screwed right. by this. Even as like institutional investors were like, actually, we're probably not going to buy these things anymore. And isn't that one of the tenets of why Web3 or crypto, whatever you want to call it, is good is because it like offers access to, you know, unaccredited right. investors right. to put right. their money it, into it, a potentially. It, <laughs> it does in a universe created and controlled by a few rich people. Yes. Right. I, I agree with what you guys are saying, but if, if the point is the stock market is not the economy, Bitcoin is not anything. <laughs> like, I just think it's just like way <laughs> yeah, too I, I small. Do, I do still think that like the actions, financial actions of co- companies and real consumers probably is the, the, I mean, are yeah. the two most important inputs in the real economy. Right. That said, I'm sure we are about to be flooded with stories of people who lost everything. Sure. Uh, on of course. The, the coin crashes, on their of NFTs, course. you know, being scammed yes. through NFTs, all of that stuff. And yes. I guess, yeah, like as a smart reader, we should remind ourselves that isn't necessarily the economy, but... That is, I mean, these are people's lives. I do think there's some innovation in crypto. The speculation is fueling super smart people to try to invent a use case. And so I don't think the government should stop people. I don't don't think the government should have stopped people. And so then it's part of the free market and that's sort of buyer beware. And there's sort of that fringy behavior we saw, like in the housing market in 2007 and six as well. You know, so like every well, time yeah, the you real see problems market are when the government backs something up or whatever. Right. But like market exuberance, always kind of the the outer reaches of it where it gets the most dangerous. That's always where you see the most risky consumer investment behavior. So like whether it was super speculative stocks, whether it was insane housing speculation, and now. If it's crypto, that will be this booms sort of defining asset class. But that doesn't mean that there were not other contributing factors to the right. boom or that the bust. My chicken little case is not crypto. <laughs> it would just be index funds are driving a ton of money blindly into stocks. Like if if Tesla was to fall to Ford's valuation, it would lose more than $700 billion in market cap. And it is a huge holding in most of the major index funds. So I think the much more risky scenario where the economy is impacted by the stock market is people lose faith in Tesla. Tesla has basically propped up most of the SPAC market. The whole sort of belief system around how these companies are valued collapses. That has a major impact on index funds, 
that has a real impact on the economy. And to me, sort of the index fund support of Tesla, just proportional to the amount that retail wants to drive it up, is much more worrying than the entire crypto market. That's my point of view. Yeah, I guess I think, see, the crypto market is like kind of fringe behavior. And maybe my analogy, maybe my comparisons are totally wrong, because like housing and stocks were both things that both institutional investors in large swaths looked at, invested in, and supported, and then later the highest risk retail investors. And then with crypto, you did not have like sort of broad buy-in. It's truly, truly kind of like this fringy, fringy thing. Yeah, it's not foundational to the economy in the way that real estate or- no you know, mutual funds or index funds. So I take it all back. <laughs> and it's very global. It's, it wouldn't necessarily have America-specific But I, my point with bringing it up is just that, you know, the egalitarian nature of crypto has taken in a huge amount of people that otherwise would have been barred from extremely right. volatile stocks. And I'm, I'm just, you will see a lot more people losing their shirts than it would have happened had they not been so, I lost, you know, so I lost some Which money. is terrible. <laughs> I, I, in, I like bought Bitcoin at you like the, the peak. Yeah, I mean... Uh, so don't uh, don't Katie's take stock well. advice from. I, I thought my whole portfolio just has to continue to be worth more than like a thousand dollars, and I'm doing okay. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I am very small percentage of my assets in crypto, most in index funds. Uh, so. I'm pretty stressed by uh, the rising interest rates because I'm probably going to have to refinance. Um, I was going to say, I actually think the interest uh, like rates and the bond market are the most important thing to watch still. No. I'm sure a ton of people are on adjustable rate mortgages too that will at some point be kicking into an awful, you know, an awful rate and the ability to refinance is basically not there if the interest rates are higher. So it's, uh, it's pretty harrowing. Yep. Yes. We'll do a whole episode just on how terrifying it is to own a home. It'll just be Tom. Yeah. I can just, I can can patch it. (laughs) I can pack it. I'll patch in my mortgage broker and you guys can see me cry live on air as he tells me what my rate's going to be. Owning a home is supposed to be smart in a period of high inflation. I guess your issue is that you're mostly financing. If you are in a fixed mortgage rate. Yeah. Yes. If you are, you know, stuck into a 30-year fixed rate, if you are like me and you're going to have to refinance when your conversion goes through. What decides whether you're variable or fixed? Well, it's just a teaser rate. I mean, you can just yeah. buy into a rate that's like, you know, first five years, two and a half percent, then it kicks up into like three and a you half. You choose when that. you talk to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. But you can you can get a fixed rate at the beginning. It's like a sure, it's just higher rate. It's higher and you have to qualify for it. Usually mm-hmm. you need to have some sort of income qualification. And then you also need to be able to put down so much on the house to get a fixed rate. And oftentimes with adjustable rate mortgages, one of the reasons they at least used to entrap people is that you did not need as much financial security to get one because you could make the payments on the lower rate. Right. But then when the rate changed dramatically, those people were really vulnerable. Is the prospect of a downturn something that is being discussed um, with any seriousness in the tech industry? And is it something that is having any kind of ripple effect? So I've been talking to a lot of investors venture capitalists and some of the crossover people. I mean, I think right now in Silicon Valley, we're still in the price adjustment period. It's not like panic. It's not like, oh, I'm worried my, this company is about to go bankrupt. Like so many companies raised so much more money. Right now, it's just how do we get private companies to match you know, the public markets? Who reorients strategy? I think if you know the stock market felt much more, it would be a different con- conversation. But right now it's more price adjustment. Maybe some companies wait 
you know, we've seen companies raise two or three times in a single year, right? So some of these companies now could just sit out 2022 and say, okay, actually, we're not fundraising this year. And funds that had been raising from their LPs every two years might deploy capital more slowly to make sure that they have more proof points so that they can raise, you know, so maybe we'll see sort of a slowdown in the euphoria, but I don't see sort of, you know, we need like Peloton or Robinhood or something to go bankrupt or like something like that, where these stocks are falling and then there's no bottom that I think would be sort of totally a game changer. And I think talking to people right now, the conversations are much more, SaaS multiples were at 100x on the private markets, and now they're coming back down to earth. And, you know, I, I think that's the type of conversation at the moment and not sort of existential dread. What did you think? I thought the information had an interesting story about Tiger Global. Oh, yeah, kind I was super of, jealous. I'd heard yeah. about Block Damon. I mean, basically, Tiger, Tiger yeah. Global, you know, and they also said Alkion had these agreements with... Uh, unicorn startups to invest. And then when the market corrected, they said, oh, actually, we want to tweak your valuation down 20% or whatever because of the correction, you know, basically. They basically clawed back their term sheets to like revalue the companies, right? Right, which is very hedge fund behavior and not very sort of Silicon Valley good standing VC behavior. But my question about that was, you know, like the, the angle for that sort of a story is like, you know, the froth is off and, and you know, valuations are coming back down to earth. But these are all companies that still raised at higher valuations their last round. Right. Like we're not talking about flat rounds or down rounds. These right. are just I, like maybe not quite as frothy, which sure, that is meaningful, but it's not totally. the same thing. Exactly. As like, That's what I'm saying. It's much yeah. more about where do the hedge funds sit in Silicon Valley in 2022? Like, is Tiger going to shift its strategy to be much more public focused and pull back on private investing? Do they still seem, I mean, the venture capital firms want Tiger to look like a bad actor here, right? I mean, there's a strong incentive to say Tiger is going to play by different rules. Don't trust them because in the bad times, they're going to screw you. But like your point exactly, I mean, these are questions about Tiger, that's not a question about like the overall sort of market or the sustainability of technology companies. You know, it's still about individual players and not sort of a huge risk. I don't know. Do you think it's going to get much worse? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm again, I cover probably one of the stranger parts of right, the market off, right now. Right, Those companies, I mean, they should eat it in, in a sort of high interest rate. Like that. that's a bad time to be... Sort of yeah, these companies lose a ton business. of money and they're reliant on a gig labor force that is pretty volatile and has been throughout the pandemic. So I'm I'm always worried about what well, worry maybe isn't the right word, but like, you know, I think you should be wary of where any of those companies go and like what trend they're drafting off of in order to justify, you know, the valuations they're going for. But, you know, GoPub is a company that also wants to go public this year. So like they're going to really test this. What a good year. I mean, I, I, yeah, I definitely think we're going to see fewer IPOs. People are going to try and hold off. Almost back market is um, so weakened now that if they can't get out an attritional IPO, what happens? Right. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess you look to the private markets again, which, you know, they're not dry, but I guess they're what you're saying a little bit less exuberant mm -hmm. uh, than they were last year. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen any down rounds yet, though, right? I mean, we haven't seen, you know, the kind of mini correction that we thought we were going to see. It's so like, early. I mean, yeah. honestly, at this point in the year, some of the deals getting announced are still deals that were probably raised before the market turned. 
So mm-hmm. on the private markets, it just takes a while for sort of the publicly announced deals to come out. And then also, ho- hopefully you're not in a situation where you need to rise, raise right after the correction. So it might not be till late, much later in this year that we see truly desperate companies raising a down round. So that, that can take time. Um, yeah. to hit the news stories. I do wonder. So it's, let me know, how do you think about, um, let me back up. So a few years ago when it looked like there was going to be a slowdown in the public markets and exits were going to get hard, it seemed like VCs were really incentivized to continue to fund startups because those startups seemed to continue to serve some sort of market. There were still people out there who seemed to want midnight deliveries of warm chocolate chip cookies or, you know, these ghost kitchen companies to deliver them meals every day, food boxes sent to their home so they could make their own dinner and not have to measure anything, I guess, was the big innovation there. Anyway, whatever. It seemed like the consumer, (laughs) it seemed like the consumer was still interested in at least experimenting with these companies. I wonder though, have consumer patterns changed so much since the pandemic that it wouldn't make as much sense for a VC to continue to help these companies float along with no exit in sight. If we're in a world where there just is not really a consumer with the desire or the, or the disposable income to get a box of clothing to look through once a month and keep some stuff and send some stuff back. If there's not really a consumer desire to have a meal kit because they can't figure out how to measure something, especially if they don't have money. Well, you saw you saw Robinhood, the ultimate retail investor has money uh, story, was down. Not even growth slowing. Their revenue was down. Um, I didn't see that. Yeah, which is like terrifying for growth stock. So that that fits into your thesis. I mean, but overall, consumers don't seem. I mean, the unemployment rate is low. And that's in part because a lot of people have left the workforce too. Right. It's like, well, the picture of the consumer is is muddled, I think. But I just think it's mostly an inflation story right now. I think the economy is good and stocks are getting hit because of inflation fear, because, because the Fed will raise interest rates and then there will be less money that needs to flow in to the stock market. More will go into debt and. And I, I don't know. I, so interesting. I, I feel like also because we're I'm coming out of the, the pandemic, like just intuitively. But like, I'm thinking about the people I know, like who don't live in DC <laughs> or New York or SF, like the people I know, like where I grew up, they're not economically thriving, I guess is how I'd put it. So again, it's like, which part of the real economy and consumer economy are you focused on too? Like kind of like the upper middle class part of the economy that is going to get stitch fix boxes. Right. They're the big user of these services. I mean, or are you talking about like the kind of probably more, I don't know, but in terms of like their total income or their, but in terms of just total number of bodies in the United States of America, I wonder if there are more bodies in the United States of America who are not economically thriving, not doing well, don't, don't have tons of expendable cash, aren't really buying very much, which is possibly why, Holiday shopping numbers overall were down, even though we all have friends who we knew were buying lots of stuff for the holidays. You know, it's sort of like, I I just don't under there. I think there's sort of like in the data, a real disparity between different groups of people. And I don't think it's very well understood. And then how does that impact something like Silicon Valley? If the Valley is really only making products for like, you know, 
the upper middle class. Right. Maybe it doesn't affect Silicon Valley at all. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and then that makes a very interesting 2024 election. Oh, you know what another good episode was? Another good episode was, remember Ska? Remember the Ska boom in the 90s? A fucking course. It was like Ska and then like the 1950s dance revival kind oh, of yeah, happened back revival. to us. Yeah. It was like Swing Revival, that Gap commercial, and then like Ska or Cherry almost like one yeah. like totally traumatic like musical advertising blob in my mind. It was yeah. pretty dark. The, yeah. the No Doubt episode really dives into that. Oh. Yikes. Uh, yeah. And those low waisted jeans are back. So there's a lot happening sort of like, I feel like there could be a huge, no doubt revival or a ska revival. Oh, wow. Oof, wow. I'm get my suspenders ready. I gotta, you know, this is just like another reason for me to tune out. <laughs> uh, anyway, go away, go away, pop culture. Uh, good, good episode, everybody. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Hang tough. All right. All right. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.